Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, November 4th, 2016, and today's going to be a listener call show. We're doing that because we did the expert counsel show, kind of switched around. So we switched things up a little bit this week, but uh, pretty much hit all the things we're supposed to hit this week. And I've got a lot of great calls for you today. What are we going to talk about today? Well... Um, I've got a, a good array of calls. First up, I've got a scoutmaster who, uh, you know, teaching young young boys uh, ropes and scouts. It has a conflicted feeling now about the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, I've got a person dealing with compacted bare ground at a pond's edge and wants to, you know, figure out how to decompact it, considering if you put mulch on it, well, it might all end up in a pond. I have... Uh, Thoughts from Jason from PA on wording of ballot initiatives to confuse voters. So it sounds like maybe something you'd want to support, but if you know what's already in place, they're actually empowering the state further instead of doing what sounds like restricting the state, things like that. Question on how to choose a permaculture teacher for a course or your PDC. Uh, question on building credit as a young person will include my revised view of credit cards. And the 70s classic Possum Living is back, and an old documentary about it is on YouTube you might want to check out. And I will give you to close up today a school stupidity moment that will make you weep for humanity. I really will. All that more in just a minute. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. You know, I use a Berkey water filter in my home, and I have for over six years now. It's important to me to have the best quality water, but it's also important for me to get great service, pricing, and support, which is why I only deal with one source. That's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, one of the top dealers of Berkey in the world with customer service that will blow you away. Learn more at Directive21.com. Again, Directive, and then the number is 21.com. You know, guys, I've been telling you about how Safe Castle Royal has everything for your prepping needs for over seven years now. Everything's a big word, but in this case, it's true. Of course, they have long-term storage food, water purification equipment, shelters, solar and wind components, and more. But hey, did you know they even have an amazing fold-down, bug-out bicycle? Yeah, they actually have two of those. For everything you could ever need as a prepper, and I do mean everything, check out safecastle.com today. Next, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1893, because the episode is 1893. And I have three from Alex Shrugged. I have the Panic of 1893. I have Dole Takes Hawaii, The Queen is Canned. And I have Lizzie Borden Took an Axe. They're all really interesting. You might want to read the ones I don't read for yourselves today. Notable births. Omar Bad Bradley is born this year. That's a five-star general that will lead U.S. ground forces during World War II. The Bradley Fighting Vehicle today is named after him. Hermann Goring is uh, born this year. Second in command after Hitler, he'll be convicted of crimes against humanity. And speaking of crimes against humanity, you know who else was born this year? Mao Zedong, the leader of the communist China, will murder up to 70 million Chinese people. In other news by law, tomato is now a vegetable. That was done so that it would uh, have a different tariff system to prevent competing vegetables from coming in and competing with our local growers. Uh, the Melody of Happy Birthday is composed. It's the highest earning single song in history. And the rank of Chief Petty Officer is authorized this year for the United States Navy. So all of that happened in the year 1893. What I'm going to read for you is the Panic of 1893. A couple years ago, Senator John Sherman passed the Sherman Antitrust Act that punishes monopolies for manipulating the price of commodities, including with key resource providers. The Sherman Silver Purchase Act, passed that same year, forced the government to collude with key resource providers and manipulate the price of silver. Silver was $1.16 an ounce in 1890, which was considered too low. The Silver Act was supposed to boost silver prices to kick the economy into inflation. This would benefit farmers who are drowning in debt. Inflation allows the big farmer to take out a loan and plant their crops and pay the loan back with inflated dollars when they sell their crops at inflated prices. The farmers felt like they'd been cheated by the bankers, so they were cheating them back. The silver miners benefited by requiring the government to buy more silver. Sherman assured President Harrison that the Silver Act would never cause a problem, but Gresham's law says bad money pushes out good. The price of silver has dropped more than 50% and still dropping. Investors are trading with worthless silver dollars for U.S. Treasury notes backed in gold, which has remained stable, and more importantly, the price has remained real. The Carson City minting of Morgan silver dollars is shut down. There is a run on the banks and credit dries up. The farmers are totally plowed under. They blame evil Jewish bankers, but actually Senator Sherman is a Methodist. 
My take by Alex Shrugged. This panic was not directly the fault of Sherman's Silver Purchase Act, but sudden turmoil in Buenos Aires caused European investors to pull their money out of South America. They turned to U.S. Treasury notes backed by gold. Then when it became apparent that people were dumping silver for gold, gold disappeared from the market. The price of silver dropped like a rock, and the U.S. economy ground to a halt. President Grover, Grover Cleveland pushed for the repeal of the Silver Act. I find it ironic that the government can see the potential problem of private investors manipulating market prices, yet when the government does the same thing, they're blind. Regardless of who is manipulating the market, it cannot be sustained for long. In the 1970s, the Hunt brothers were accused of manipulating silver prices, pushing silver from $11 an ounce to over $50. Price collapsed two months later. I'm not sure who was to blame, but a lot of rich people had their backsides hanging out in the wind that Thursday in 1980. There's a name for rich people who try to manipulate the market over the long run. They're called poor people and poorer countries. Indeed. Um, It, it doesn't strike me odd that government thinks it can do what private industry can. That's the hallmark of government, the arrogance of government, the arrogance of the state. But I want you to realize what we have today in the Federal Reserve System, with money backed by nothing, is a direct result of this. You see, the problem in a monetary system backed by a, 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 a metallic substance like gold or a bimetallic substance like gold and silver is those those products have a tangible value that, that anybody's willing to provide at any given time. So manipulation of them becomes apparent very quickly. What they manipulate now is currency created from debt. So they can manipulate it all they want, and they can get away with it for a lot longer. But in the end, it always ends the same way, and it ain't good. That means preserve and protect your wealth and diversify in things beyond just dollars. With that, let's go ahead and take our first call of the day. Hey, Jack, how you doing? Long-time listener. Uh, it's Anthony from Long Island. Um, I've been having a real hard time with the Pledge of Allegiance. I'm a scout leader for all three of my sons, and it's going great and all, but when I really think about those words and then I listen to podcasts like your version of the uh, Anarchy and the other such uh, episodes, I'm really having a hard time pledging allegiance to the state, a piece of cloth, Talked to my uncle, he's a Vietnam vet, and he said, you're really not pledging to the cloth. It's a representative of the vets and our service. And I get all that, but I'm still struggling, man, still struggling. So if you can give me some enlightenment, any kind of tips, just talk about it a bit. Maybe share some thoughts with some of your other listeners that maybe can help me along. Like I said, it's Anthony from the People's Republic of New Yorkistan. Thanks a lot, man. Keep it up. This is a complex issue because it gets very, very emotional and, and people assign a value to um, every flag as though every flag is the flag. And what I mean by that is people get really upset when, let's say, some douchebag goes out and buys a $3.99 flag at a store wrapped up in plastic that if it didn't sell would probably have been thrown in the trash and steps on it or burns it. And it's their own property, and it's a piece of cloth made in China, and it's in the shape and form of the American flag. What gives the American flag its value, if it has any value for your, you, is not what other people think, but what you think about your country and its ideals. It's very personal. And we have taken something that should be very personal, and we've made it very public, and then we have ostracized those who choose not to participate in it in the way that we think they should. Um, to the point where people want people arrested and locked up for destroying their own property or think they should be slapped or beaten for not putting their hand on their heart and saying the pledge or not standing during the national anthem or what have you. Does the flag stand for our soldiers that fought for our, our country? If that's what it means to you, then yes. Our, our flag really is a symbolism of the state that is the United States of America, though. Thirteen stripes for the original 13 colonies. 13 stars for the original 13 colonies and a star added as each state came into the Union. Uh, it's a direct representation of the constitutional republic that this country is supposed to be. I have mixed emotions about this myself because on some levels I see the mental conditioning and mental programming that's been used by blind patriotism to control Americans. But I very much believe in the ideals that are America. Not the, not the government, not the state, Not the, not the Constitution in of itself. None of those things. But yet, the concepts of those things are supposed to represent freedom, liberty, justice. And the ability of every person to pursue their dreams to the fullest extent, so long as they harm no one else. My problem is, that's not America. 
Now, in some ways, America is still closer to that than just about any place on earth. But we, we fail to fulfill our promise. We fail to allow people to just simply pursue their dreams without being interfered with, without being told how they have to behave when they interact with other people. I think if you're hurting other people, that's one thing. But what I'm talking about, you, you guys know what I'm talking about. So I have mixed emotions on this. However, and this is one of these subjects, like I can't win. No matter what I say, I'm going to piss everybody off. You're a scoutmaster. The Boy Scouts of America teach young boys to honor and respect the flag based on the symbolism that it means in the, the, the way that scouts look at it. If you're going to be a scoutmaster, that's one of the requirements. And then that's what you do. Because you chose to do that job. You chose to volunteer your time to mentor young men. And part of that mentoring is teaching them the scout's code. And the way a scout behaves. And, you know, the ethics around treatment of the flag, etc. They're part of scout culture. So, if you want to do that job, then you... If you have issues with it, you deal with those internally and you do the job. And I kind of liken it this way, and this is what I've, I've tried to explain to people. Will I stand for the national anthem? Yeah, no problem. Do I stand for it when it's on my television? No, right? And I'm sure a lot of people get upset when people don't stand in stadiums, don't stand when it's on their television, right? I mean, it's a magic song, then it should be a magic song all the time, right? I stand because it's important to others, because I chose to go there, and... If I went to your house and your family is a Christian family, and I'm not Christian, I'm a theist, I believe in God, but that's it. I don't believe in <clears throat> just about anything that goes with um, with, with uh, revealed religion prayer, right? I, I, I don't believe you're doing anything when you pray except internally in your mind, and that's fine. In your spirit, I believe you are making an impact, but I don't think God is out there listening and then you know does things because you ask for them. Just, I don't think God works that way. But you do. That's, that's okay. We don't have to agree. But if I'm in your home and you invite me to your dinner and we sit down at your table and everybody bows their head to say grace, I'm not going to stand up and walk away and say, you know what? I, I, I can't participate in this because I don't believe what you do. I'm going to shut my mouth. I'm going to be silent. I'm going to bow my head in honor of what is important to you. And I think those of us that have some issues with some of the things that get wrapped up as blind patriotism with the state could still do well to respect others and what they believe. Because they're good people. They're good people. The person that says, men died for that flag. They believe what they're saying. Men didn't die for the flag. They died because they believed in their nation and they thought it was worth fighting for. The flag is just a symbol. That's all that it is. Before anybody gets too pissed, let me tell you about an email I got a long time ago from a guy that was a, I believe he was a major at this point in his career, but when he's going through the school, he was a captain, Army, United States Special Forces. And he was going through a school, like an advanced SF school, designed to teach leadership and how to deal with being captured. You and your men are captured. And... This training gets very realistic. They will starve you in these schools, okay, period. And his men had not eaten for like four days. And they said, we'll feed your men, but we won't feed you. He said, that's fine. So we'll feed your men, and they laid down a flag, and they said, when you walk across that flag, we'll feed your men. And... He wouldn't do it at first. And I think like another day went on and he saw how hungry his men were and he went back and he said, I'll do it. So he walks on the flag. They feed his men and then they turn around and feed him. And, you know, as the thing's winding down and the class is ending where the instructors can start acting like your instructors again instead of like the enemy, he's kind of, you know, effed up in the head over this, right? Like, because he failed. And the guy says, no, you passed. That's what you were supposed to do. That's what you're supposed to do. Your men and feeding your men in that situation are way more important than a flag. They weren't asking for where your positions were or any information they could they could use against you. They were just trying to break you mentally. 
And the only thing you failed at is you didn't realize it. And when you did it, you should have simply thought, I don't give a damn. I'm feeding my men. Because it's more important that I take care of the guy next to me than I honor symbolism. And when you want to tell me that, that men that go to combat fight for the flag, I'm going to tell you what they fight for. They fight for the people that they love and care about that they left back home, and they fight for the person next to them. And you can say whatever you want. That will never not be true. That will never not be true. And if you talk to somebody that's actually served, and you leave the emotion of the flag thing out of it, because some of them get really riled up over it because they get locked up in it too. But if you ask them simply, is do you feel that this is what you were fighting for? The, the people back home that you cared about and the man next to you, 100% of them tell you yes. 100% of them will tell you yes. Why? Because that's something worth fighting for. Let's take another one. Hawkins from Kentucky. Um, my question is, can I use a heavy layer of mulch to put around a pond to help build soil? Uh, the situation is the pond has an edge that's about 45 degrees, about 30 feet long, and it's heavy clay and large creek rocks. And I'm wanting to build a soil so I can put more of a grass area around it. Uh, my concern is that the first rain after putting the mulch down will wash a lot of debris down into the pond and possibly change the pond's conception and kill the fish that are in it. It's a good pond with a lot of fish in there. Um, can't wait for your... Well, I, I think your instinct is is bang on. 45 degrees, and it, it may not actually be 45, but it's obviously pretty steep, right? Um, so if it's compacted, there's no vegetation on it, and uh, it, it's you know it's just not going to hold, and and it's going to slide in, like you said, wind will probably slide it in if not if not the first rain, and once it slides in, what's going to happen then? is it's going to leach tannins into the water. It's going to rain the, uh, raise up the tannic acid. It's going to cause O2 levels to plummet, and you may, in fact, lose some fish. I mean, it all depends on how much mulch, how big the area is, how much water, but it's not a good thing. When I go fishing in South Florida some years near Fort Myers, I look at the bay on the bay side of Sanibel Island. Um, sometimes that water looks like iced tea. Sometimes it's beautiful crystal blue. Sometimes it looks like iced tea. When it looks like iced tea is when they've had unusually high range rains. Lake Okeechobee overflows, the whole river system coming down there, leaches through the swamps and the and the forest, and leaches tannins out, and it's not a good thing. You know, the fishing's never as good when it's like that. So I think you're dead on. What would I do? It would depend on how big the area is. If possible, I would loosen the ground. I would till it, I would disturb it, something like that, and I would seed it with something very, very fast growing. Uh, this time of year, ryegrass would be a good idea. But when I did that, I would seed it lightly with ryegrass just to get something going. right? You don't want it to be like a field of ryegrass. And I would get other perennials into it, and I would get that ground kind of being broken up by the root systems itself. And ryegrass is tough stuff. And then what I would do is this, this spring, early spring, I would go and seed it with more of a perennial grass and an and herb mixture, And I would take something and I would roll, I would not cut the ryegrass. I would let it come up high, like waist high. And I would roll it flat. Like get a, uh, like a roller they use on a golf course green or something. I don't want to cut it. I want to roll it flat. Basically you're using it like a flat mulch. You just seed it first and roll it flat. I've done the same thing in some areas like that with my ducks here where I just threw a whole bunch of sunflower seeds in there and they go in and they eat the seeds and they just flat it out like a mat. And it's amazing what it does for ground recovery. That would be one option. Another option would be maybe to put down seed, cover it with mulch, and then cover it with some kind of a weighted down netting, depending on how big the area is, like you see on the sides of the road sometimes, until you get growth going there. But you're, you, the key is to get something growing there, right, and, and irrigate and take care of it and love on it until that happens. The other thing is to figure out, well, why is it like this in the first place? You know, is it livestock that did this? Is that the only decent access point to the side of the pond where animals can come in and out? Then you're going to have to fence them out, right? Is it some sort of vehicle traffic? Well, then you're going to have to create some kind of a, you know, a road bypass or something so you're not using that. So think about why it got that way as well. But if you put 
like just wood mulch down everywhere. Yeah, it's probably going to slide right in there. And wood mulch, you're going to have pure iced tea looking water. And that's not good for your fish. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one. Good morning, Jack. Jason from PA here. Uh, I'm calling to talk about another voting issue that I'm seeing this year. Uh, recently, it was discussed that there's a ballot question in PA, which is should judges be forced to retire at 75? That's basically the wording of the question. But PA judges are already forced to retire at 70. So this is actually wording it as a, should we actually add this when it's in reality a five-year extension to let judges stay in office for another five years? Uh, Florida has a similar ballot question regarding solar panels. It's written to make you think that it would allow you to have your solar panels and be hooked up to the grid. What it's really basically saying is, can we pretty much charge you for that grid hookup and no longer really have to pay you for the solar power you're generating on your roof and selling to us? Um, but this seems to be a growing trend. So everyone's going to the polls. As Jack says, you know, there's really pretty much no big deal between twiddly D and twiddly dumb. But your local elections and your local ballot questions can actually be significant. Uh, so check them out. It looks like the new trend for this year is to completely word the questions to frame them in the opposite. And I'm sure there was quite a bit of money involved on both of these. Um, sorry for this being a long comment, but it's pretty disgusting, and I think it should be illegal. But then again, it is government. This is nothing new, and I know there's one in California right now, and I'm really not sure what side I come down on it. I haven't dug deep because I'm not in California. It has to do with uh, legalization of marijuana. And it sounds good. It sounds like you can grow up to your, six of your own plants in your house. But what they're saying is a lot of places right now in California, you could grow marijuana anyway if it's only for personal use and up to six plants. I think it's maybe it's five. I, I don't know how that one works out, but apparently it sounds like you're voting to, like, completely legalize home production of marijuana, but the way the the law actually works, it might put a lot of small growers who are growing for the medicinal and the recreational industry out of business. So that that's that's the kind of thing that's going on. And it's not just done with that. It's done with, I mean, it's constantly done. And sometimes it's right out in the open and people don't see it. Here's an example. All this shit just came out with Hillary Clinton and her emails, an ongoing investigation. And I don't remember the exact numbers. It was some high numbers, like 60% said the, the, the new um, revelations that the investigation is still ongoing and the emails found on Uma, uh, what's her name? Uh, 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 God, what, what the hell's her name? She's been nothing but the news for days. Um, Aberdeen, right? Uma Aberdeen's computer that she shared with dick pic tweeting, uh, Anthony Weiner, uh, has, you know, thousands and thousands of emails on it and, The FBI's, so like, let's say 60%. I don't know what it is, but let's say 60%. It would make no difference in how they were going to vote. If you look at that and say, and it might have been higher, it might have been like 70% or something, right? Say 75, 75% will make no difference in, uh, in how I would vote. And then there's some that say more likely and less likely to vote for. There's actually a small number of people said it would be more, make her more likely to vote for Hillary that the, I, I really, but here's the thing. So this huge number says it will make no difference. So the media presents that as, well, see, it's not a big deal. Well, hold on. Like, the country's evenly split on this. Like, it's, it's like they're literally neck and neck in the popular vote, like 50%, 50%. I was like 51-49, and then it bounces back, right? So let's say I was going to vote. I'm not going to. Let's say I was. And let's say I decided I'm going to vote for, man, weakest libertarian candidate in history ever again with a horrible VP candidate, Jill Stein, uh, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump. You see why I'm not voting. I just uh, Let's say I decided I was going to vote for Trump, because it doesn't really matter. And, and now I'm sitting there, and I see this shit come out about Hillary Clinton. And a pollster calls me up and says, well, sir, are you, is, this, how, how, is this likely to change the way that you're going to vote? Well, no, not at all. So it goes down and it makes no difference to me. Well, it makes a difference to me. I think it's even more proof she's a scumbag. But 
I already wasn't going to vote for. So that number is highly misleading. And they do this over and over again. And you know, coming from a marketing background, this is a marketing trick. I've been gone long enough. I don't think I'll get sued for defamation or anything over this. But I used to work for Fluke Networks. And if you know Fluke, yellow is like this big thing with Fluke. You see a yellow device, it's probably Fluke. But people get confused. There's Fluke. There's Fluke Networks. Fluke Networks is the computer networking side of things. Where Fluke is your old school stuff, your multimeters and electronics and things like that. Fluke Industrial. So Networks was actually a fairly recently created company when I was working for them. Less than, I think, 10 years old or something like that. And the Fluke meters, the old stuff that you're probably thinking of, was gold and gray. Well, when Networks came out, there was like no real need to stick with the gold color, but it seemed like a good idea. So they hired a branding company, and the branding company did a research uh, project for them. They spent a lot of money on it, and they determined that, that in a consumer's mind, the color pattern that, was, that, that, that said trust was blue and gold, and that's why they went to blue and gold. Not because it looked cool, not because it was the company's tradition, because it conveyed trust. Well, you don't convey trust. Honoring your commitments, doing what you're supposed to, keeping your word. But companies look for these little edges, like a color scheme imbibing trust, right? Or like black and red and gold mixed together actually have a very high-end appeal. Think Ferrari. Okay, and, and so this highly scientific marketing that's gone on for a very long time over the years has been more and more incorporated into the electoral process, into politics. And they're using scientific-based marketing tactics to influence people every day. And the news media is completely guilty of this as well. And when uh, a group that wants an initiative to, to get done, they know isn't popular, They'll often snake it in there as a ballot initiative because you're you're empowering the people. And the average voter doesn't even know that there are ballot initiatives. They show up on polling day, right, and they look at the initiative, and it says, should we limit the terms of, of judges in the state of Pennsylvania to 75 years? Okay. Well, the average person starts to think, well, probably, yeah. Like, that's kind of a conservative. Like, okay, you've had enough time. It's time for somebody new. You know, and can we really trust your judgment? But they don't know that they're only limited to 70. Now, here's the, here's the upshot. If it doesn't pass, the old law stays in place. So you take a shot at it, but you really have nothing to lose. And, and, and again, this stuff happens over and over. So if, if you're serious about voting, I'm going to tell you that the things you don't really have a clue about when you get there are probably the most important ones. I remember the first time I voted, and there was things like the city comptroller and city council. I like never heard of any of these people. And I realized right then that most people voting were just voting parties. And I'll be honest with you, way back then when I first voted, I was a Republican. That's what I did. If I didn't know who those people were, if I didn't have an opinion form based on knowledge of the election, which are very few things I did, well, the Republican, the Republican, the Republican, the Republican. That's what most people do. In fact, there's a, a box on most ballots that just says straight ticket Republican, straight ticket Democrat. I don't know, guys. I, you know, it, it makes me have even more questioning in my, uh, my belief in anything left in the democratic process in this country. I believe it's all orchestrated. And even where your vote is counted, right? And, um, even where you, where the, the will of the people comes to a head, a lot of times, The will that comes and is, is enacted, the people that voted on it don't even know what they voted for, or they don't know who they voted for. Let's take another one. My name is Martin. I'm calling from uh, California. I see that there is a uh, permaculture course uh, listed on Santa Cruz permaculture, and uh, I was wondering how do I – I'm trying to go through the website, and I don't see any um, – Anything that says that they're an accredited institution or that any of their um, instructors have uh, 
taken a course uh, from PRI or anyone else, and I was curious if um, there is a uh, database of uh, certified instructors and uh, certified institutions. Uh, I have a vague idea in my mind that there is one. I just don't know where to look. Um, I've looked on PRI's website and haven't found it yet, not to say that it doesn't exist on their website or somewhere else. Anyways, uh, if you could, uh, this this could go out to Ben Falk or any other members of the uh, expert council. So a couple of weeks ago, I answered a question for Roy about something similar, and he wanted to know what it took to be you know, qualified as an instructor. And there's this group out of New Mexico, and uh, you know they have their own standard, and you have to have two PDCs, and only one can be online, and you have to have so many hours, and this and that. And Here's the reality. One more time on this. There is no... When you're looking for like kind of state approved government, there is nobody with any authority that says something's accredited or not accredited in permaculture other than for their own thing. So, um, the, the, the organization out of New Mexico that says you have to have all these things, if that's important to you, then that's important to you. I think to most people that want a PDC, it's not important to them. This is how I personally feel. If you're considering taking a PDC, it's an investment of time and money. Your research should be into the instructors. And if you can't find any information about those instructors, like where did you take your PDC? How long have you been practicing permaculture? What projects have you done? What is your philosophy? Who are your students? Do, do you have reviews by students? Like whatever it is that, you know, gives you confidence in the instructor themselves, you know, do you have material available on YouTube that I can look and get a feel for your teaching style? You know, have you demonstrated an understanding of permaculture principles that I, as a student, would at least expect that you would have? I think most people take a PDC, they've, they've gotten some level of education for themselves. And I think that's what you do. You judge the instructor or the instructors if it's more than one person. One place you can go is permacultureglobal.com and see if the person's listed there. Um, you can see there if they've taught other people, how many students they've certified. Um, and, and read up about projects they've done and things like that. The weakness of that is, you know, I have some, a lot of projects going on. Like one of them is halfway there. I don't have time to put that up. But I'm not an instructor, right? I, I teach here and there, but that's not my business. If that was my business, I would be updating every project I did, every PDC. I'd have all my students getting certified on Permaculture Global electronically. Um, that was set up by PRI Australia and Jeff Lawton. That's a great site. Uh, Jeff through PRI Australia does have a certified permaculture instructors program where you can you have to have a certain number of hours and they sign off on you and they say not only has this person completed a PDC but we at the PRI are accrediting them but their accreditation is no more valid than the people in New Mexico who I'm not very fond of uh, or anybody else's I could start the Jack Spirgo permaculture accreditation society tomorrow and say that based on my knowledge and my understanding of permaculture, these are the requirements. And if you, if you as an instructor thought that was valid, you could apply and receive or be turned down for my accreditation. And then does your student care? Does your student care? So again, I, I'd go back to researching the instructor. Who are they? What have they done? How many times have they taught a PDC before? And I mean, somebody has, you have to do it first at some point, right? But, I really am a big believer that no matter how much you know, if you've never taught a PDC, it is a good thing for the first time you teach in a PDC for you to teach with a lead instructor who's taught several, has them under their belt, knows how to run them, and you take you know a chapter or three. And you handle those and you get critiqued uh, from your instructor. Maybe do that again, either with the same person or even better, a different person. And then say, okay, now I'm ready to go out and teach a class where I'm the lead instructor and maybe bring one of your past leads in as a part, you know, to do a few things that's kind of there with you. And if, if, if I was, you know, deciding to take another PDC and I see, okay, this guy got his PDC, let's say, you know, one of mine is from Jeff Lawton online. That's where he got it online. I'm, no problem. That's a great PDC. Uh, or our PDC at Perma Ethos. Okay, great. And uh, he's taught, you know, alongside of a, a couple other people. And this is his first one that's his own. I'd have no problem going to that. Um, I took an online PDC. 
I've never taught in a PDC. I've never been to any other classes outside of that. And I'm ready to do my first PDC. I'd have a hard time, especially, you know, an on-site class with a time commitment, going to that person's PDC. But they don't have to be big names. Just what have you done? And what do you know? And I'd say in this day and age, I'd be leery of any permaculture instructor asking for, you know, $500, dollars or more for a PDC where you can't go to YouTube and see, you know, some examples of their teaching. Because it's too easy to do. Nothing have to be high production value. Nothing be a, you know, an iPhone or something. But just so you get a feeling like you're not going to be sitting in a class for two weeks wanting to blow your brains out, or you realize in a week that they don't know shit, that you know more than they do because you read a couple books. And I think that if you are able to, you know, gather some background on an instructor and just see some example of them presenting, you can see competence and you can see incompetence really quickly. And you can see competence not just in knowledge, but in teaching. Because I think the knowledge is out there. It's the ability to convey the knowledge in a way that engages with your students, where your students actually learn. That's the, that's, that's, that's the magic of teaching. Do you put people to sleep, or do you put people on fire? And you're looking for an instructor that sets you on fire a little bit inside. I know when I'm in a good class, no matter what it is, whether it's you know, how to shoot handguns or how to do permaculture or, or a business class. When I'm only halfway through it and I'm already thinking, I can't wait to get home, not because I want to be out of here, but because I want to start all the shit that's in my head that I can do now, I want to go do it. That's what you're looking for. Accreditation, I don't give a damn, and I don't think you should either. Because, again, nobody has any authority. There is no authority. And Bill Mollison, God rest his soul, made sure it would always be that way. Because he said if the government or the universities touch this, they will ruin it. It must remain decentralized. Remember, Bill was an anarchist that didn't know it, and his co-founder, David Holgram, is an anarchist and proud of it. Let's take another one. What's up, Mr. Spearco? My name is Zach Leary. I'm 23. I've been devouring your show for four or five months now and really appreciate what you're doing man thank you now i got a question for you it's it's about buying land you know being as i'm young i don't have a whole lot of credit um i've got in like the low 620 and uh can't really secure a loan to buy land or a house to do a lot of the things that I want to do. And what a lot of people recommend is that I get a secured credit card. And you, you say credit cards are banned. And I was just curious if you had any advice on how to take those steps at my age and where I'm at. Uh, thank you. So over the years, I have softened my stance on credit cards a little bit. I, I've just, I was such a credit card, anti-credit card Nazi, right, for so long because I've seen so many people destroy their lives with credit cards. Just just insurmountable debt that they'll never be able to pay off and eventually go bankrupt or uh, negotiate uh, things down, but then up with you know destroyed credit or whatever, or pay it off, but go through a lot of pain to do it. But the truth is, if you want to buy real estate, you need a decent credit score, and, and low 600s isn't going to get it. You need to get up around around 700, 710. Uh, then then you, you're, you're kind of on the board, so to speak. That's kind of your, your target. And you can do it lower 680, but once you're in like the 700 range, then <clears throat> as long as you have good income and good uh, income-to-debt ratio and a history of income for a, like a regular standard mortgage, they'll throw money at you. I mean, they just will. Okay, here you go. Boom. Self-employed is a little harder, but it's pretty much the same thing. So if, if a credit card is the only way you can help enhance your credit score right now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't flog you for doing it, but I would say the discipline has to be extreme. So you would apply for a credit card, and if you get one with cash back or whatever, fine, get your cash back, and pick two or three fixed expenses where you can use a credit card. A lot of power companies will let you use a credit card. That's not really a fixed expense, though. That's variable. A lot of times your cell phone bill is almost the same every month, and they'll take a credit card. 
So you set up automatic credit card payments on that, and then you set up automatic payments of your credit card bill for the same amount. So it's just like an automatic draft from your bank account. And you do it with two or three things, so there's activity on the card, and it's always paid off. Or you can do it manually if you want to. But I'm going to tell you what happens to young people so many times, and this is why I'm so anti-credit card. <sighs> you know, my, my, my cell phone bill is 75 bucks, and that's all that's on a credit card this month. I could use a little extra money this week. I could catch up next month. I'm just going to pay 50, and they have a balance of 25 bucks. It's no big deal. But a year later, you look at your credit card bill, And you owe $3,800 with a minimum payment of $260. You can't let that happen. Here's some other ways you can improve your credit. Buy a car. I have no problem buying a car on credit. If you buy the right car in the right situation, right price, the right time, you have the money, what have you, because most people are not going to shell out $25,000 and buy a car. And with the financing, you can get a lot now. You're actually mathematically better off financing. Another way is through leasing. And this can be extremely inexpensive. Um, you may need a co-signer, but if you can, be the lead on it and have your co-signer be the second. Because here's an example. My son, with $1,500 down, is driving a really nice option out, Nissan Altima, for $129 a month. I, I, I don't, if you bought a used car cheap, you can't get ahead on that. He can drive it for three years. He can turn it in. Walk away and do something else. He can turn it in and get a new car. He can convert it to a buy. But he's driving it for $130 a month. That's building his credit. Again, I had to co-sign for him to get that done. But that's building his credit. That's better than a credit card. I'm not saying better for your credit score than a credit card. It's about equal. But it's better for you. So these are things that you can look at. So I think having a credit card is fine. I'm now at the point where I've, I've gone back and said the whole no credit card thing, I, I, don't, I don't recommend that. I've been having a credit card. I, you might want to like put it in a glass and freeze it nice and leave it in the freezer so you really can't use it unless you really need it. But I'll tell you what happened to me. A few years ago, and for years I said, you don't need a credit card to rent a car. And for years I was right. And we ended up in Colorado. I think it was Colorado or L.A., one of these places, and uh, couldn't get the car rental company to let us rent the car. And there was like 10 car rentals all in the same place, and one would do it. And it cost me an extra 300 bucks. And we got home, and I said, F it, honey, get us a credit card. So we have a credit card now, and we use it for that. That's all we use it for is, is you know, when we travel, renting our vehicles. Um So even I have a credit card now. And I also want to say it was you know, kind of easy for me in my late 30s when I started this show, having bought multiple houses, having like almost a perfect credit score, you know, having paid off and cut up my credit cards and didn't affect me anymore because I have a track record to say you don't need a credit card. For young people trying to buy property, it, it, it's becoming more and more a necessary evil. But you, you, like, how I used to be a Nazi about not having it, you got to be a Nazi about how you manage it. Because it is literally like taking a rattlesnake into your home. Okay? Say a couple of them. A couple big rattlesnakes in your home. Here's the truth about rattlesnakes. I could set up a spot in my room, and I could keep rattlesnakes in my room, and if I do all the things I'm supposed to do, I'm never going to get bit, they're never going to get out, and no one's ever going to get hurt. But the second you go off of the system, it's only a matter of time until somebody gets hurt and hurt bad. That's what a credit card is. So think of it that way and then use it appropriately to build your credit score if that's what you need to do. But think about other ways. Loans from your bank. You know, If you have, have $5,000 in savings and you're going to buy a used boat for $2,000, you go to the bank and say, I want this to buy a boat, and they'll say, two grand. We could do a personal loan. You take a personal loan from the bank, right? You make two payments on it, so it creates credit history, and then pay it off. It'll be the same as buying the boat for cash. And start building your savings account back up. That's something I did when I was young. I wanted a boat. The boat was $2,900. Bucks. 
I bought the boat on a direct loan from the bank. That helped my, gave my credit a bump. I made like six payments on it and then wrote a check and paid the whole thing off. And that was a credit-building strategy for me. So think beyond the credit card, I, I guess I'm saying, with, with credit. Anyway, let's take another one. Hello, Mr. Spirko. Manfred from Bulgaria. Long-time listener. Somebody you must have heard about is Mrs. Dolly Freed, author of Awesome Living, or How to Live Well Without a Job on Almost No Money. She wrote it in the 70s at age 18. The book has been reissued in 2010. She lives in Texas now. She'd be an excellent fit for a podcast. I appreciate very much your work and thinking. Thanks. Very well. So I, I maybe do the accent. And I, I thought he said at first, awesome living, right? It's possum living. And when I heard that, I'm like, oh, yeah, I think I might have read this book a long time ago. And I, I think I have. It was written in the 70s. And it's about this girl and her father who have this kind of, you know, old kind of rundown house on a half acre near Philadelphia. And they have no jobs. Uh, he gets divorced from her mother, and the mother leaves, and she takes the candle business they had together, and he keeps the house, which by this point I was paid for. So they have no mortgage, which helps out a lot. It's not a really nice house. There's not much taxes on it. But then you still got to eat and, and, and everything. And, you know, they go fishing, and, and they, you know, homestead, and they keep chickens and stuff like that. And it's kind of a guidebook of how to do that. And they were living on about $1,500 a year. Now, before you go, oh, my God. I mean, if this is like... Let's say, I know it's sometime in the 70s, but let's say 1975. So just in the dollar times uh, inflation calculator, $1,500 in 1975 would be worth about $6,800. They call it seven grand. But living on seven grand a year, that's, you know, most people could scrape up seven grand a year without a real job. And I believe the things and the tactics in the book are doable. I also, when I was digging around with this, I found a documentary that looks like it's from the, it looks like it's from the 70s, man. And uh, it's three parts on YouTube. I have links to them today. It's low resolution, as you might imagine, from something that old that's on YouTube. Uh, but it's kind of cool. I saw the first two and a half, like, so I went halfway through the third part. Uh, I was kind of listening to it in the background while I was uh, getting ready for this. And what, what really kind of hit me personally is like Roanoke, Pennsylvania, even though I grew up there in the 80s instead of the 70s, this young, young girl, I'm like, I went to school with so many girls that sounded like that, they had hair like that, they looked like that, they talked like that, and they acted like that. And uh, when I went on Amazon, I noticed there were some negative reviews for the book. And one of them um, is all, all pissy because she keeps referring to her father throughout the entire book as daddy. It's kind of creepy. Daddy, daddy, daddy. Well, I think she was like in high school. Like, well, she wasn't in high school. She was high school age because she was homeschooled. So she was high school aged. What do most girls that are 16 call their father? Probably daddy. So I think it was just her being a 16-year-old girl writing a book, and whoever bitched about it probably never wrote a book in their life. So I, I wanted to know what happened to this lady, right? Like, where is she today? Uh, I don't know if she'd be interested in an interview or not, but you know how that works. You fill out the form, you get on the show. You don't fill out the form, you don't get on the show. Um, but Dolly Freed, the author, um, did not stay in that little house with her father. Uh, she became a successful author with this little book, and she grew up to become a NASA aerospace engineer. She aced the SATs with an education she received from the public library, put herself through college. She's been an environmental educator, business owner, and a college professor. She now lives in Texas with her husband and two children. I'd love to have her on the show. I, I couldn't find like a blog or anything she's actually doing today, you know. But I think I, that's probably worth going out back and reading this old book alone, just knowing where she ended up and thinking about it from there. And then again, I have that documentary loaded up for you on the show notes today. It's not 100% practical, right? But... It's pretty good. By the way, Possum Living is spelled P-O-S-S-U-M, not O-P, right? Okay, anyway, just wanted to let you know that in case you try to look it up on your own. With that, let's take one more. Hey, Jack. File this one on the, the Jack was right regarding your school and how your children are stuck in jail. A little background. My son over the weekend injured himself and went to a doctor's office on Sunday. Saw a doctor, got a doctor's note for his, a sprained ankle, was given crutches, 
was given a note for uh, Jim not to play for a week and also a note to use the elevator. Fast forward to this morning, my son goes into school and they remove him from class and place him in in-school suspension due to the lack of a doctor's note for use of crutches. They actually put my son in in-school suspension because they had nowhere to put him because he didn't have a doctor's note for the crutches. Talk about idiocy. I went up there and had it livid with them. I said, don't you have a note for the elevator? Don't you have a doctor's note for him to be out of school? Yeah, but we need one for him to say he can use crutches. And he's also not allowed on a bus to get home. Unbelievable. Jack, what are they doing to our kids? Anyway, it's Joe from Lindenhurst, New York. Keep up the great work. Joe, something tells me, as livid as you were when you went down to that school, they were better off with you than me. I mean, I think I would have drugged somebody out of that school by their nose holes, two fingers up the nose holes and just drag them out in the street and beat their ass. I know that's not the right thing to do, but you do that to my kid because you're that stupid. I mean, it's a good thing that my voice is so strained because I'd be in a jack rant like you wouldn't believe right now. I just don't have it in me. i got to give myself the weekend, hopefully, to recover here fully. I definitely do feel better today. And I'll say again, I apologize, guys, for this week. I don't feel like I'm giving you my best this week, but I'm giving you the best that I can right now. Um, why did the number of homeschoolers double in the last couple of years? This kind of shit. And I want to explain to you what's really going on here. It's not they're doing this to our kids. It's This is what's been done to them. This is a bureaucratic mind. The book says that I have to have a note for the child to have crutches. I know that I have a note that says the child was injured, the child could take an elevator, etc., but it doesn't specify crutches, and the book says crutches, so he can't be here. As retarded as that sounds, in the mind of an administrative bureaucrat, I understand that it's wrong, but I have no choice. You, you do have a choice. You absolutely have a choice. You can use your effing brain and effing common sense and say, yeah, that'll work. And nothing's ever going to come of it. But they're so afraid. Well, what if? What if he hits another kid with a crutch? What if somebody makes fun of him and he picks up a crutch and smacks a kid in the face, knocks his eye out? That's on him. Well, no. No, no, no. It's on me. Because I didn't make sure that it was okay for crutches to be here. I have to say, when I was in school, when somebody got hurt, they came with a cast on and crutches, there was no note involved at all. They didn't have a note for an elevator. If there was an elevator in the school, of course you're going to use the elevator. You're on crutches. Right? There was no note, hey, he might be a little late to class because it'll take him longer to get through through the hallways. The teacher, when the guy got there five, you know, a couple minutes late, let's say, on crutches, ah, Tom, what happened to your foot? You know, you're late. Yeah, but I, yeah, I see you're on crutches. What class were you coming from? I was so-and-so's class. Okay, that's all the way down on the other side of the first floor. This is, okay, I'll tell you what. Till you're off of those, you got a couple extra minutes. Show up 10 minutes late, you're going to the dean. That was it. You know why? Common freaking sense. Now, I'm going to tell you that the stupidity in schools is directly proportional to the growth of the number of administrators in schools. If you go look at a growth chart, you can use Google Images, you can find one, that shows teachers relative to administrators, the, the ratio has completely gotten out of whack. There's almost as many administrators as teachers now. And it's gotten stupid. You know where else that's happened? Healthcare. As the number of administrators became higher, actually, in medical, medicine than the number of doctors and nurses, medicine has gotten stupid and stupid expensive. Administrators, bureaucrats, ruin everything. They're unnecessary. And once you have someone that's employed in an unnecessary job, they know they're not necessary. And because they're not necessary, they come up with shit to do to justify their existence. And then as they begin to progress in the bureaucracy, all right, they realize the only way to be successful is to get bigger, which means spending more money. It's the opposite of business. If you gave me a school district 
And I went into that school district, and I realized we have five high schools. This is ridiculous for the student headcount we have and growth trends. And I leaned things out, and I took us down to four schools. I cut half the administrators. I used that money to hire, you know, 10%, 20% more teachers. Gave all the teachers that deserved it a raise. Cut the amount of money we're spending, both short and long term. Shored everything up and made everything better, including teacher retirement long term. I would be considered a failure. Yes, I'd be. Now, if you gave me a business division, right, that had five different cities, and I eliminated and did all the same shit I just said, I'd be a hero. See, the world of bureaucracy is the antithesis of reality. And and all you're seeing now is we've been doing it for so long. The stupid has metastasized like a cancer throughout the bureaucracy in our public school systems, our government, our healthcare systems, our legal systems, everywhere you can go. You have people that are not necessary being paid to do jobs that are not necessary, trying to justify their existence, and they've got to be so many of them, now they're in protectionism. This is the same reason a cop pulls you over, looks at you and thinks you're drunk, gets you out of the car, has you go through things, I'm not sure, gets you to blow, legal limits .08, you blow .08, you're right there, you're guilty. You're two blocks from your house. He looks at your license. He knows you're two blocks from your house. He's a good guy. He's a good cop. Doesn't want to do this. Realizes when you told me you had three beers, you really did. Maybe you had them a little closer together than you thought. Maybe you didn't eat as much. This could happen to me. This has happened to me. I just didn't get caught. I don't want to do this. 1985. What I'm going to do, sir, you're going to get in your car. You understand me? Uh-huh. Okay. You're going to drive straight to your house. I'm going to follow you. You're not going to go 1% above the speed limit. You're going to turn into your house. You're going to go into your house. You're not going to leave your house again tonight. If I find you, if one of my buddies finds you, if you end up picked up tonight, I am going to make sure that you pay dearly for your stupidity. You're going to go home, right? Yes, sir. That's what used to happen. You know what that cop thinks now? Shit. If I do this, first of all, it's all recorded now. So my supervisor is going to ask me why I'm under quota for my, my number of busts this month when I had one in the bag. But what I'm really afraid of, I'm going to take this guy to his house. I'm going to make sure he goes inside. He might decide he's not done yet. Opens up his liquor cabinet, pulls out a fifth of Jack. It's only got a little bit left in it, a quarter of a bottle, which is a lot of Jack, right? Guzzles it down, wants some more, jumps back in his car. Drives to the liquor store, kills somebody. I've lost my job and my career and my family and my future because I tried to be a nice guy. Protectionism. That's why the idiot is not as big an idiot as they look like. Because as stupid as it is, what they're really saying is, I want to protect myself. And this is why your kids don't belong in government schools anymore, right here. Right here. That's, that's a full case right there. And if you don't think that would happen in your school district, go ask. Go ask what would happen. I bet most of you the same thing would happen. Oh, we've got to have a note for that. It's dangerous. It could be used as a weapon. It's a crutch, moron. It's a crutch. But that's what it is. It's all of these bureaucrats leaning on their crutch of safety. As long as I do everything the book says, the way the book says, no matter how dumb it is, I'll keep my job, I'll get my annual raises, and one day I'll get retired from this penitentiary, I mean school, And be able to draw my pension. That's how they're all thinking. And the system is designed to make them think that way and no differently. Anyway, if you like this show and the work I do, do please consider becoming a member of the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade today. Uh, it's an easy way to show your support for the show. comes out to 18.3 cents an episode. It's 50 bucks a year. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. Uh, if you do that, you, get, you sign up and you can uh, get really great benefits including content, materials, and discounts that are available nowhere else. Currently, we give discounts to over 70 vendors. If you use just a handful of those discounts over the year, your membership will more than pay for itself. The other way to support us is to uh, do all your Amazon shopping at TSPAS. When you go to tspaz.com and click through the Amazon, it doesn't matter what you buy. You'll be supporting our work and the efforts that we put in here to provide this great content for you um, on the survivalpodcast.com. And I'd really appreciate you guys, you know, doing that. If you like the show, if you listen every day, that's one way you can help support our show, and it's painless. Because I'm talking about 
only when you're going to do it anyway. But I do put up an item for review every day. Today's item for uh, review is Fermax Yeast Nutrient. You can use this making beer and wine and things like that, but where it really shines is in mead making. It's basically food for your yeast to help them work faster. And in my article today, Fermax Yeast Nutrient Item of the Day, I give you two different ways to use it, uh, just a straight edition in the beginning, which is I do, what I do, called the Lazy Man's Way, and a staggered editions, which are generally more important when you're doing a classic mead without any fruit or things like that. When you put fruit and herbs in your mead, you're getting nutrients from those additions that help your yeast kind of get up and moving and, and, and get things done, right, and get that, that alcohol fermented out of that sugar. And uh, to do its job and to stay strong all the way to the end. But the yeast nutrient gives it that extra kick. If you're doing a classic mead, which means honey, water, yeast, there's not much nutrient there, right? The yeast is basically going to survive off of, as it begins to reproduce and some of it dies, it's going to eat the bodies of the dead. That's where it gets its nutrient in there. So in that case, you might want to do staggered additions. Uh, and I give you kind of the, the standard two, four, and six day standard editions, uh, but there's other ways to do it, and you can look into that if you want. Um, there's also two other nutrients out there that a lot of mead makers have gone to. One is called Fermade K, and one is called Fermade O. Some use one or the other. Some use both in combination. Uh, I've tried them. I personally didn't get any better results. They cost almost double. Um, a big one-pound bag of Fermax is like eight bucks, free shipping on Amazon. And to me, it works just as good, so it's what I use. But uh, you can check out the other ones. I have links to those as well. But remember, all of your Amazon shopping, just go to tspaz, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Before you go to Amazon.com, click the link there to go to Amazon. And it doesn't matter what you buy. You can buy dog diapers, and I'll get credit for it. You can support this show with your doggy diapers. Somebody's buying them every month. They're like, must be on auto buy or something. I don't know. But uh, I, I do appreciate you guys supporting the show, either by becoming a member or doing your shopping on T-Spaz. With that, we've wrapped up the week, and uh, I thought, what's a good song to end this week with? Again, I, I feel bad this week that, you know, my voice is so crappy, and I just, I can't hammer it like I usually do for you guys. So I want kind of a song that, that hammered it a little bit, but I didn't want a, I didn't want a rock song for some reason today. I wanted something kind of country. I wanted something kind of like that fits this audience, our desire to be out in the woods, and things like that. And so I thought, well, Who's the greatest country band that's ever existed? And, and, and if you are mentioning a band that was formed in the last five years, you probably listen to Luke Bryan or something. I don't know. No. No. The band that made country what it is today, the band that took people that were into rock and roll in the 1970s and they said, I could listen to country, was Alabama. More number one hits than any country group that's ever existed, and they're still making music. This is an old one. That's from the 80s. It's called Mountain Music. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Over 
Yeah. 